Have you ever heard this alternative definition for the word insanity? Take a look here on the screen. Insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing. There it is. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Have you heard that? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Now, in light of that statement, think with me for a moment about your own bouts with this insanity. You personally. You personally. What do you do over and over again expecting different results but always ending up disappointed. Always ending up depressed that it doesn't, for the umpteenth million time, work. It doesn't turn out the way that you want. Think about the severity of your own quote-unquote insanity. In what ways are you, to your disappointment and detriment, doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results? Ask God to show that to you this morning, right? Right, right here at the outset of our, of our time of teaching, just ask God quietly in your heart. God, show me, show me how I'm doing this. Show me how I'm like this in this way. Were he alive today, I believe that quote, that alternative definition that you see there, it would resonate with the inspired writer of Ecclesiastes. Let me show you why that's the case, why he would really be digging this quote. (laughs) He would see this and think, yeah, exactly, exactly. Let me show you why that's the case. Open to Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 1 this morning. You read... Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 12, I think, last week in the four readings. In our Old Testament readings, we do four Old Testament readings. And then on Fridays, we do a New Testament reading that's connected to the four. Right? That in some way, there's some theme or maybe there's a fulfillment of that scripture from the Old Testament in our Friday New Testament passage. So these, we're going to dig into some of the the four chapters that you read last week. We're going to start in chapter 1. That's where our main text is. Please turn there or scroll over there if you have not done so already. Look with me at verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1. Verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1. Consider what this writer tells us here about himself and his personal quest. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Everything about human existence. This is what he's looking. This is his quest. This is what he's looking to understand. This is what he says, end of verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun in this world, right? And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. 
and what is lacking cannot be counted. Okay, before we dig into this text to really understand what God has for us here, to understand the author's meaning and then figure out what is God communicating to us today. Before we do that, let's briefly talk about the identity of the writer here. Who is this who's writing? The title preacher, do you see that in verse 12? Preacher. That title is a translation of the original Hebrew word kohelet. And Kohelet just means one who leads an assembly, kind of like I'm doing right now. Leading an assembly of people. It's the assembly leader. That's the Kohelet. In the Greek Old Testament, remember Alexander the Great came through and he conquered a lot of the the world in the, whatever, the third, fourth century, whenever that was, B.C. Well, guess what? People started speaking Greek then. A lot of people started speaking Greek so much they forgot their old languages, like the, the Jewish people. So there was a translation made of the Old Testament in Greek that's really old, before the time of Jesus. And in the Greek Old Testament, the title Kohelet is translated Ecclesiastes. Well, why Ecclesiastes? Because he's the leader of the Ecclesia. And what is the Ecclesia? It's the assembly, but usually in the New Testament, it's translated as church. Yeah, that's all church means in the, in the New Testament. It's an assembly of people. It's an assembly. The same word is used in the book of Acts when there's an assembly, a, a mob that comes together because they're, they're really upset with the Apostle Paul and his preaching ministry. That assembly that the guy says, hey, this is an unlawful assembly. It's an unlawful ecclesia. Same word for church. So that's why the word ecclesiastical is talking about things regarding the church. Ever heard of that? Like they might say ecclesiastical authority. It's talking about church authority. It's not talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) That's kind of the funny connection between those words. They're both related to the English word assembly. This is just the preacher of the assembly, the Kohelet. But in our English language, the word preacher is kind of a weird word. It has some connotations when you hear preacher. I'm not sure it's the best translation of this word kohelet. I'm just going to call him the teacher. He's the teacher, the one teaching the assembly. So we'll use this title teacher instead. Who was this teacher over the assembly of God's people? We're never told specifically, all we know from verse 1 is that this teacher was the son of David and king in Jerusalem. Now, based on that evidence and other clues from the book, the obvious candidate for this teacher is King Solomon. King Solomon. But, but even in the Proverbs, King Solomon is mentioned specifically. In Song of Songs, King Solomon is mentioned specifically. Ecclesiastes... Is never mentioned specifically. It's not identified that way for whatever reason. Is it Solomon? Most likely it is Solomon. Uh, he's called the son of David here, but son of David just means can mean just descendant of David. That's why Jesus was called the son of David. He was the descendant of David. So this could be any really king from David's line, technically, but it's most likely Solomon. Ultimately, the specific identity of the author, it, it, it does, it's not really critical to understanding what he's written here. So again, we'll simply refer to him as the teacher. 
What is the point the teacher is making in verses 12 through 15? It's simple. Everything is pointless. That's it. That's the point he's making. Everything is pointless. Life is pointless. Living one's life in this world is, verse 13, look at it, the unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So much for coming to church to feel inspired and optimistic, right? <laughs> like, dude, man, that pastor was like a total downer. This <laughs> He was so depressing. He was saying life is just pointless. Well, remember, I'm not saying it. God's word is saying it. The inspired writer of Scripture is saying it. Life is pointless. Where am I getting this idea of pointlessness from? Well, look again at verse 14. What does he say there? I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Don't miss that word, vanity. Don't miss it. That word's confusing to us sometimes because we usually connect vanity with like pride and appearance. Not that use of the word vanity. So, you know, get rid of that. That's not what it's talking about. Vanity. Here, the meaning of the word is not like, he's so vain, you're so vain, that song. Like, he's so vain. It's not that. It's the same as when we say, well, it was all in vain that I did that. My trying to talk with him was in vain. That's the point of it here. It means it was useless. It was pointless. The word in Hebrew here is the word chavel, which literally means vapor. That's what it means, vapor. Vapor. The word's used 73 times in the Old Testament, but over half of those usages, instances, occur in this book. <laughs> so more than half of the times that this is in the Old Testament, it's, it's in this book. It is the key word of this book. If somebody came to you and said, okay, sum up the book of Ecclesiastes in one word, you know what the word is. It's this word, chavel. Vanity, vapor, that's the point of this. Look at one chapter 1, verse 2. Just scan up to verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now translate it literally. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Right? Yeah. Okay, but we're getting the sense. We're getting a better sense of it here. And that same exact layered, dense statement is found not only in the opening verses of the book, it's at the very end of the book, in the closing verses. Well, you know if there's like a sandwich like that, bookends, you know it's an important idea, isn't it? You know that everything in between those two bookends is about Havel. It's about vapor. That's the point. That's the point that he's trying to make. What does the declaration mean? Vanity of vanities? It's like saying Lord of Lords, King of Kings. 
Song of Songs is the name of the book in the scriptures. Holy of Holies means it's it's the most, it's the greatest of all the the vanities you could think of. This is the vanity of vanities. Of all the pointless things in this world that you can imagine in your mind, this is the most pointless. So what does the statement mean? We could translate it this way. This is the most pointless of all pointless things. Everything is pointless. I'm driving this home because you cannot, I do not want you, I'm not letting up on this because you need to know this is exactly what he's saying. I'm not going to soft pedal it. I'm not going to soft sell it to you. This is what he's saying. Life is pointless. Watch how he drives this home. So this word hevel, vapor. He's, look at what he's saying. Verse four, verses 14 and 15. Life is as pointless as trying to straighten a crooked branch. Can you do it? Nope. Life is as pointless as trying to count what you don't have. How would you even begin? Life is as pointless as trying to chase and catch the wind. You can't do it. So, okay, okay, okay. So how has the teacher come to this very dreary and depressing conclusion? How has he arrived at this? Well, look at how he begins to explain this in verses 3 through 11. Let's draw in the context as we're thinking about the ideas introduced in our main verses, verses 12 through 15. What's led up to this point, verses 3 through 11? He begins with three examples from nature. He says, you want to know that life is pointless? You want me to prove to you that life is pointless? Look at nature. Verse 5, sun comes up. Sun goes down. Sun goes up. Sun goes down. Sun goes up. Sun goes down. Happens the same way every day. Verse 6. The wind blows here and there and back again. The wind blows around and there and back. And the wind, the wind blows, blows, blows. Verse 7. The rivers and the streams flow into the sea But they never fill it up. They just keep going. And it's never, ever filled up. It just keeps going. All of this is summed up in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The verse is probably better translated. That word things is dabar. In Hebrew, it means word. So it's probably all words are wearisome. No one can explain it. Everything that he's talking about here, he's like, I'm trying to explain it with words. It's not really going to work, though. It's just kind of pointless to try that. It's kind of tiring, isn't it? It's kind of tiring to try to explain something that really probably can't be quite explained. But we're just kind of scratching at the surface. We're getting kind of a hint of it. So look at the world around. He's saying that just like in nature, it's always going but never getting anywhere. Right? Folks, we're on a planet that's going in circles. It's not going anywhere. It's just going in circles. That's the idea. Right? He doesn't use that exact illustration of the planet going around the sun. But that's the idea. It's going nowhere. 
Just like that, the human words are also an exercise in futility, trying to make sense of it with words. If our mouth can't do it, look at verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear is filled, filled with hearing. We look, right? We look. We use our eyes every single day, but we never are able to really see, are we? We listen and we never seem to hear as we should. We are always looking and looking and we are always listening and listening and still we do not get it. And so the teacher understandably asked, what is the point of all of this? Look at verse 9. All human existence, life in this world, seems to be on this same kind of treadmill, this same kind of hamster wheel. What has been, verse 9, is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Life just goes on and on and on but never seems to get anywhere. No one can say, see, look, here's something new. Here's something new that's going to free all of us from this hamster wheel. That's going to free all of us from this rut. People do say that all the time. All the time. Especially advertisers. Especially tech entrepreneurs. Especially politicians. Especially self-help gurus. Right? That's what they're going to say. Oh, have I got this. Oh, you just listen. You listen for this new advice, this new piece of legislation, my new book. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change everything. It's going to be the new thing that's going to set us free. We hear it all the time. And that's not just us. All of our forebearers heard the same thing over and over again, just in different words, in different ways. Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun. It's always been like that. Look at verse 11. Why has it always been like that? Because verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We keep forgetting what our parents already knew, what our grandparents already knew, what our great-grandparents already knew. We forget it and think we're the first ones. Do you see... It's pointless. For example, think about this. From the Bronze Age to the Internet Age, technological innovation has always promised that kind of real change. Real escape from Hevel, right? This is it. This sword... Look, listen to it. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, look, at the, look, at, look at this. We've made this out of iron, right? This phone, right? This phone. This is it. This is the game changer right here. They've, we've said the same thing. But while that kind of technological innovation, whether the Bronze Age or the Internet Age, while that kind of technological innovation does bring us new things, new change, it always, always, always ends up perpetuating all of our old sins. It never frees us from our old sins. 
It just gives us new ways to sin in the same old way. The new things give us ways, new ways to sin in the same old ways that we've always sinned. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, if we stop and go, oh, take a breath. It would be very easy to write this teacher off as some kind of royal cynic, right? <laughs> like, dude, this guy is he's really out there. He's really, de- he's really negative. Like, he, this is a depressed and despairing despot. That's all he is. He's just, he's just bad, having a bad day. He's a cranky king. That's what he is. But go back to verse 12. Go back to verse 12. Let's look at this and think about the second half of chapter one. It's clear that we cannot simply write this guy off as king of that glass half empty crowd. (laughs) You're king of the glass half empties. You're king of the glass half empties. No, 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 no. Look what he says. He was a man full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. He was unrivaled in many respects in terms of what he understood. Verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. Verse 16. He had personally acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him. And his heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This guy's not a crank. Right? He didn't miss his antidepressants in the morning. Right? That's, this guy, is, he is full of wisdom and experience, unrivaled. Now, knowing that, we should again ask, how did this man come to such a depressing conclusion that life is pointless? Well, if we ask that, it would just lead us into the next chapter, chapter 2. You could scan, you could scan chapter two, look over it if you would, but, but we're not going to really get into it deep. What do we find in chapter two that you guys read last week in your readings? We heard more about the specifics of the teacher's quest. What did he do when he was searching for wisdom? What did that quest actually look like? But what does he tell us here? First half of the chapter, we hear more about these specifics. In his search for meaning, he tested. He tested and he considered all sorts of things, the kinds of things with which people fill their lives. Pleasure, laughter, alcohol, drugs, folly, accomplishment, possessions, entertainment, sex. He tested all of those things. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, he turns to another subject. He turns to the subject of work or toil, labor, your job. And he asks this, what's the point? What's the point of me every day getting up, clocking in, clocking out? What's the point of me doing this over and over again? Exertion and exhaustion? Leading then to accumulation, leading to where? To the grave. Depressing, right? Depressing. Now, a couple other things, just two quick items that are worth noting as you think about this, this man's journey. First, the teacher cannot be accused of basing his sad conclusions 
his negative outlook, right? He cannot be accused of basing that on just a bad day, an unhealthy season of his life, right? We've all gone through those really hard seasons of our life. Maybe we were making really bad choices. Maybe just a lot of, a lot of stuff happened to us. It wasn't good. He, this is not him. He didn't base this off of that, right? He didn't have like this season in which it was just girls, drugs, and rock and roll all the time. And he was using those to stay afloat in a sea of dysfunction. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. Look at verses 3 and 9 of chapter 2. The teacher makes it clear he was always using wisdom as he engaged in this quest. That is, there was always a kind of intentionality in his searching. What did I say before? Pleasure, laughter, alcohol, folly, accomplishment, possessions, entertainment, and sex. In all of those things, he was intentionally thoughtful. He was searching out and trying to understand those things. Second, a second point worth noting about his quest. The teacher and his conclusion here cannot be faulted for not going far enough. For not getting enough. Of him not having enough. Somebody could do that like, well, yeah, I know that you're disappointed with life when you tried all these things out. But you just, you just didn't go to the right places, dude. You didn't have the enough stuff. You didn't go far enough. No, 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 no. Look at, look at this. He makes clear in the first half of chapter 2. He was, chapter 2, verse 9. Great and surpassed all who were before him. Great means that he, he was in a position of great power. Right? He, he had this position. What does that mean? It means that whatever he wanted, he could get. In whatever quantity he wanted. To whatever degree he desired, he could have it. He was a man of great means. And in the eyes of most people, he had it all. He had arrived. If life was a game that according, according to most people that you do life with, he had won. Does that make sense? He can't be faulted saying, well, you just didn't get far enough, right? You had a big house and a nice car. You didn't have the nicest car and the nicest house. That's what you were missing can't be accused of that he had everything he wanted he had he had means he could get anything but again this idea if life was a game then he had won that's not his conclusion is it that is not the conclusion of the teacher it's not the conclusion at which he arrived his takeaway is restated over and over again in chapter 2 look at verse 1 verse 11 15, 17, 19, 21, 23. And then the very last verse of the chapter, verse 26, he says the same thing over and over and over and over again. This also is vanity. It's pointless. And it's striving, a chasing after wind. What about the rest of the book? It follows the same pattern. Yeah, there's nuggets of wisdom in there that we can pull out and go, oh, this is really interesting. But it's part of this journey that he's on. And the overall picture is Havel, vapor. 
of all pointless things, this is the most pointless, is, his, is where he's arriving here. This is like a diary, like a journal, this book of Ecclesiastes. It's the record of a man as he's asking questions, as he's struggling to make sense of this thing called life. Now, please notice this. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Please notice the question that drives the quest, the question that drives the quest. It's made clear at the outset in verse, verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the question I put to you this morning. All that you do in this world, what are you actually gaining? Would you allow me to put it to you that you're not gaining what you think you are in a lot of cases? You're asking things to give you what they can never give you. What do you believe you're gaining? That's the question he puts here. What does man gain? What does a person really gain from all of the relationships and things and aspirations and activities and hardships that characterize each and every human life? What does man gain? Well, ultimately, in the face of death and in the face of ultimate meaning, anything gained, truly gained, seems to be nothing more than chavel, vapor. Impermanent. You can't hold on to it. Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters, friends. Ecclesiastes is in what section of the Old Testament? They're called the what books? The wisdom books. The wisdom books. That means everything that I've been telling you up here this morning is pure, unadulterated wisdom from God. You're like, what? Wisdom from God. This is like super depressing. What are you talking about? Wisdom from God. God has wisdom for you this morning from this book. As negative as it sounds, as depressing as it sounds, what wisdom does he offer you? Take a look on the screen. This is it. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of accepting that life in this world on its own terms, is ultimately pointless. Let me say that again. You see it there. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of accepting that life in this world on its own terms is ultimately pointless. Why is this wisdom? Because if you don't start here, you'll never get anywhere. That's the message of this book. If you don't come to this conclusion as the teacher did, you won't find real wisdom. Think about this. As a nation, we spend billions every year on therapy, self-help books, medications, vacations, recreation, etc. And yet, we are still the most depressed country on the planet. We work too much in order to buy things we don't need, we give and give and give and then lose it all because of things like corporate fraud or market volatility. We try to help, but then make the situation worse. 
The one who suffers abuse often becomes the abuser. The one who seems to have everything always feels like something is missing. We pay attention only to be neglected. We consume and consume and consume and we are never filled. Remember that definition from the outset of our time this morning? Time in the Word? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Isn't that you and me? Like every generation of fallen humanity before us and every generation to come before the Lord Jesus returns, we pursue the same things expecting to gain something that is ultimate, that we will somehow crack the code and figure it out, that we will find something spiritually satisfying, but these kinds of things can never provide gain. The kind of gain that we're talking about in chapter 1. And yet... I, we, you, me, still look expectantly to these things. We look expectantly, but foolishly, to the next good restaurant. Can't wait till that's built. To the next vacation. To the next show on the watch lists. To the next job. To the next project completed. The next friendship. The next romance. The next set of letters after my name. The next like. The next follow. The next sale. The next purchase. The next child. The next election. The next candidate. The next good book. The next doctor's visit. The next phone call. The next good day. The next collectible. The next car. The next house. The next investment. The next song on the playlist. The next shift. The next season. That one will be the one. We tell ourselves, that one will be the one. And I'll find there what I'm looking for. And when we don't, guess what? We forget. Because what is what is and what is is what has been and what will be is what has already been done. And yet the memory's forgotten. Just like this will be forgotten in the, in the generations to come. We look to such things expectantly but foolishly. Why? Because they simply cannot give meaning to our lives. In our readings, we learn from chapter 3, verse 11. Take a look, if you would, chapter 3, verse 11. We read this. Many of you know this, but you may not understand what it means. Chapter 3, verse 11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? He's put forever into man's heart. He's put eternity into man's heart. What does it mean? Well, at least one of the things it means is that every human being in a search for significance longs to understand the big picture of human existence, especially their own existence. What does it all mean, right? How does it all work together? I, I need to figure it out. I want to see the big picture from the eternal perspective. I want to understand that. But you see where verse, verse 11 of chapter 3 goes. There's more to it than I just quoted. What does it say? He has put eternity in a man's heart. God has, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You have this deep, 
itch that needs to be scratched. You have this deep hunger to understand it all. You won't, though. You won't understand it all. But it will drive you to try to make sense of your life through all these things and experiences and all of this stuff that's just hevel. It's just vapor. And yet you're trying to grab onto it like it's gonna, like it's solid. Like it's gonna be there for you. Meaning, significance, the very things for which every person hungers, these things cannot be discovered when you only look around you or within you, as so many people prescribe today. Right? Just look within yourself. You'll find meaning within yourself. Right? What's your truth? I'm not interested in my truth. I'm interested in the truth. Right? I'm interested in the truth. Capital T. So meaning is not discovered when we look just to look around us at the world, what's happening in the world, what's going on within us in our lives. If we are to follow the teacher's example here in Ecclesiastes, what is truly good is not discovered when you look around you, but only when you look above you. That's the only, those are the only bright spots in Ecclesiastes anytime the teacher refers to God and what God has revealed. You see, if he's looking like this only, this does not make any sense, right? Life is completely pointless if this is all you're looking at. It's only because of revelation. Not the book. Divine revelation, revealing what God reveals to us, what he has for us. It's only then that we understand the meaning that life has. The meaning of life cannot be found by examining and experiencing life in this world. Even the best life has to offer. It cannot be discovered there even by the wisest among us. As Ecclesiastes is teaching us. It can only be found when we consider what God Himself has revealed to us. And that revelation is sprinkled throughout Ecclesiastes as the teacher reminds his readers of what is good in reference to God and what God has revealed. Just look at verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3 if you're already there. You can just scan over verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3 and you'll see where he's referencing God there. And in your reading, you probably read things like, okay, what's the point of toil? I labor, I labor, right? My stuff can be taken away from me. My stuff will be taken away from me. Everything I accumulate in this life, it's going to be somebody else's when I die. I can try to build something that matters. Somebody else can come after I die and just tear it down. What's the point? Why am I even doing this? And yet, because of what God has revealed, the teacher is able to say, But here's what's better. Here's what's good. Enjoy the fruit of your labors. Enjoy that that meal set before you. Enjoy enjoy having money to be able to help somebody who's in need. Enjoy the blessings of family and friends. Enjoy those things. Those are good. Maybe now he, he still can't make complete sense of how it all fits together, but he knows those are good. He also says, wisdom is better than foolishness. He kind of found that out on his quest. What if I just act like a complete fool? Will I feel better about myself? <laughs> and he says, no, you know what? I found there's more problems that come with foolishness 
if you really live a foolish life. It's, it's actually practically better to live and walk according to wisdom. I, I don't know how it all makes sense together, says the teacher, but I can tell you it's better. And he'll go on, and you know from chapter 12, he says the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's where he's arrived at the end of this, in light of the revelation of God, what God has revealed. Of course, if we take that idea, when we arrive in the New Testament, we learn about how God's revelation came down to us. So that those who were only looking around saw in their midst that which was from above. Don't you love that? They were only looking around, but there was one who came from above. Even though they weren't looking to, for, to, 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 to what was above, what was above came down to them. That's the good news. That's the good news. Look at the verse on the screen. You know it well. John 1.14 And the Word, the revelation of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is life really pointless? No, it's not. But wisdom calls us to first accept that in a wayward wayward world like ours, filled with strange sinners like us, life is pointless on its own terms. That's what wisdom calls you to accept first. What you're seeking out there, you won't find out there. What is out there can never give you what you're seeking. If you have the wisdom to accept that, you cannot, if you, if you can accept that idea, and if, then you can arrive at the same conclusion as the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And if you do that, then more and more, you are going to reject that temptation that there's this kind of gain, even from the good things of life, that there's this kind of gain in the things of this world. Our spiritual struggles are all rooted in this right here. We continually look to the world to give us something it can never give us. And until you accept the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, you're on the hamster wheel. And you can try your best to say, no, this means something. This is it. This is what's going to change. This is everything that I've been looking for until the next day or until the next week when it's not anymore. It's the Christmas toy syndrome, right? We all had when we were kids. <laughs> just extrapolate it out to your life as an adult. It's the same thing over and over again. But Jesus is what came, is the one who came from above, came down to reveal God to us. We look to Him, the one who said this. Take a look at the screen. He said this, for whatever, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, right, gives up, for my sake and the gospels, the good news will save it. And with a nod to Ecclesiastes, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and yet forfeit his soul. You could be like the teacher in Ecclesiastes and have everything you ever wanted. But when you do that, when you're looking to those things, you lose your soul in the end. But if you'll let go of your soul now, if you'll entrust it to me, I'll save it, says Jesus. When you give up on what is around you and within you, you will cling to what is above you. Isn't that beautiful? Right? When you give up on what is around you, stop asking those things to give you what they cannot give you. Stop looking within. (laughs) You're going to cling to what is above you. And that's where eternal life is found. As disciples of Jesus, who here is a disciple of Jesus? You a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. Who here is a Christian? All the same hands should have gone up. They mean the same thing in Scripture, right? Christian is a disciple. Disciple is a Christian. The word disciple is used way more in the Bible than the word Christian. 20 times more, 30 times more, probably. As disciples of Jesus, not only do we have guidance about keeping what's around us in its proper place, our Lord teaches us about that, right? He says, I want to teach you what you should do with pleasure, laughter, alcohol, folly, accomplishment, possessions, entertainment, sex. I want to teach you about that. I want to show you the right way, where to slot those in because those are good things. Just put them in the right place. Understand how they work, how they fit. Not only do we have that kind of guidance, but we have a better teacher than the teacher in Ecclesiastes, don't we? We have a better teacher. One who says, follow me and I will teach you about the point of life. Follow me and I will teach you about the point of your life. Do you want to know? Do you want him to teach you while you're here, the point of your life? He says, I will satisfy the eternity in your heart with eternal life. Wow, that sounds good. That's what he wants to do, brothers and sisters, friends. That's what he can do. Through my own death and resurrection, says Jesus, I will give you hope in the face of death and I will give you fullness in a new world, not this tired old world. I will give you promise of a new world. Brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. This book is not irrelevant. In some ways, this is the most modern book in the Bible. It's the most relevant book in the Bible. It speaks in so many powerful ways to where our culture is and where we are right now in history. But this book is not irrelevant to you. Be equipped with it. Be armed with this book so that you can help each other, so that when you're talking with one another, you're praying with one another, you can say, whoa, 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 what what do you think you're going to gain from this situation coming up? I'm listening to you, brother. I feel like you want to gain something that this thing can't give you. Is that, is that the case? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I am asking this thing. I'm looking for meaning in my work. I'm looking for meaning in my whatever. And then guess what? We can direct each other back to Jesus. And Jesus says, let me show you the point of your life. 
Let me teach you about the point of your life. So we need to encourage one another with this wisdom as we've accepted this wisdom. Having accepted, if we accept that life is pointless from this perspective of Ecclesiastes, then let us, let us live fully devoted for the point of life revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's how we should live our lives. Fully devoted. Because we know this. Speaking of vanity, let me leave you with a final promise. We know that when we are fully devoted to what He's revealed, we can accept, we can relish the fact that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. What we do for Him is never in vain. It's not pointless. It's not useless. In our flesh, yes. But for Him, through His Holy Spirit, never.